Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. You know, the one-drop rule was a big thing in slavery and segregated America with a lot of states trying to decide who was considered black or white based on what was called the one-drop rule. Of course, that seeped into the LDS church as well with the priesthood and temple ban. So Dr. Paul Reeves is going to talk about that and whether Brigham Young really did use that phrase in his famous 1852 legislature speech. So you won't want to miss this conversation. And uh, oh, by the way, I'm giving away a free copy of Paul's book. Let's talk about race and priesthood. So sign up to gospeltangents.com contest if you'd like. I'm going to be picking a winner this weekend probably. So get your contest entry in today. Uh, once again, gospeltangents.com slash contest. So now back to our conversation. So we have other people who have, who, who passes wide in the database. Um, and, you know, so in the database, we have um, a couple of cases where people, um, Latter-day Saints in the 21st century have uh, written to us and said, hey, we have African ancestry in our DNA in the 21st century. And we think it traces back to, um, you know, ancestor X or Y. And if so, we would love to have them included in the database. And we've done the research and there have been, you know, other examples like that. Um, um, Russell. Stevenson. Russell Dewey Ritchie oh. <laughs> um, is in the database and he um, is ordained in 1971. He's in his 70s. Um, and his father was formerly enslaved. So he's the wait, son of a slave. Did you say 1971 or 1871? Correct. 1971. 1971. Okay. His father was born into slavery. Wow. So this is the son of a slave. Right. He was ordained in 1971, but, you know, he's passed his wife by that point. His father and his... So his father is um, likely the result of uh, interracial rape and born into slavery. Mm, because the slaveholders used to purposely impregnate slaves to get more slaves, right? Correct. Is that probably what happened? Well, you know, I don't know the, the intent, but um, the actual DNA. Um, uh, so the family has done all kinds of DNA work in, in this particular case. And... Um, uh, so Russell's father, Nelson Holder Ritchie, is um, so the descendant of a white enslaver and a black enslaved couple. And the circumstantial evidence just suggests that it was more than likely an interracial rape. And she becomes pregnant, is sold into Missouri. That's where um, Nelson Holder Ritchie is born. Uh, and then he shows up um, in the 1860s in the home of... Um, a man by the last name of Ritchie in Kansas who uh, runs a, a stop on the Underground Railroad. And Nelson takes that as his last name. He fights in the Civil War on the side of freedom. Um, 
uh, you know, so he's um, a product of an interracial rape, more than likely. Um, and then after the Civil War, establishes a livery stable and hotel in Great Bend, Kansas. Marries a white woman. Missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints take room and board at his hotel. And you can predict the rest of the story. Um, <laughs> the family converts. Uh, they move to Utah. Nelson and his wife, Annie Kellen Russell, apply for uh, to be sealed to each other, apply for a temple admission in 1909 and are prevented because Nelson um, is black and his bishop says, no, you can't. And they appeal and they say, but our two oldest daughters have already been sealed in the Salt Lake Temple. Oh, wow. And they had. They had. So they are then the product of two generations of interracial marriages because Nelson's wife, Annie, is white. He's um, a formerly enslaved man. Their children are light enough to pass. The two oldest daughters had moved out of the home, weren't living in the same ward, found uh, people to marry, and went to the Salt Lake Temple. No one had any questions about it. So they were sealed. And so when Nelson and Annie wanted to be sealed as well, they said, well, our two oldest daughters are sealed. And the bishop said, I don't care. I'm not letting you go and never give gave them a recommend. Um, but um, they had nine kids. And every one of the kids, either in life or by proxy after death, received priesthood ordination and temple admission before 1978. Um, one of the daughters is a Relief Society president in Layton, Utah, and sealed to her husband and passes away in 1976. The daughter of a slave dies in Utah as a temple worker in 1976. Wow. The whole family, in other words, um, it's just one experience after the next. The youngest son is Russell, and he's not ordained to the priesthood when he turns 12. He was 11 when his parents are denied temple admission. So I only presume that the same bishop said, I'm not ordaining your son to the priesthood. Um, he eventually uh, moves out goes to California, becomes a pharmacist, marries his wife in the Presbyterian Church, um, eventually returns to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have no idea what story he tells his bishop as to why he's not ordained to the priesthood, but I found the ordination records. Um, all in the same year, his bishop first ordains him. Now, wait a minute. Let me back up here because you said that he, he married his wife in the Presbyterian Church. Did he join the Presbyterian Church or I, no? I have no indication that he joined, but his wife was not LDS. Okay. Okay. And so does it, does it sound like he got rebaptized or no? No. He was already, he's no, already? He was already a member. Okay. He didn't, no, no reason given. But I mean, I guess the, 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 it would be an easy enough story to be like, well, I'm an inactive. I'm a kind of a Jack Mormon. I, my wife's Presbyterian. Yeah, that's why I didn't get ordained. I mean, that would probably be a pretty easy story, a lot easier than, well, my grandpa's black or my father. <laughs> and I don't even know what he understood about why he wasn't ordained. I have no indication. I don't know if if they even understood that their father was formerly enslaved. I don't know what hmm. what the parents said. I don't know how much they understood about um, their own father's racial identity. Um, just no indication. The dad dies, uh, Nelson dies in 1913, right? And so 
His wife, Annie Cowan Russell, waits a decade and then goes to the Salt Lake Temple and has her husband sealed to her posthumously. And there's no race record on that card. No. Because <laughs> we don't look at race. And she's she's white. Um, so temple policy um, in place at the time was supposed to prevent that from happening. But the entire family demonstrates the impossibility of policing racial boundaries in life, let alone after death. Right. And so um, she just waits a decade and then um, has him ordained to the priesthood, goes to the temple, um, has him sealed to her posthumously, um, and all of the rest of the family, all the kids marry white spouses. Um, they raise their families as Latter-day Saints. Uh, the grandson of, of one of the daughter, or excuse me, so Nelson Hula Ritchie's grandson is actually the quarterback at BYU in 1945. No way. Yeah. Wow. So so the grandson of an enslaved man is a quarterback at BYU, <laughs> of the BYU football team. What was his 19- name? Um, Rex Olson. No way. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, and, you know, ordained to the priesthood. Um, no one is is cognizant of, of this. And so those generations all had passed as white. They still have African ancestry in their DNA because this family contacted me and said, we would like our ancestor included in your database. And had done extensive DNA research by the time they had even contacted me. Uh and and so for us, it was a matter of um, tracing the historical record, verifying the evidence, um, and it's a remarkable family story that demonstrates. And I, in fact, I opened the book with Nelson Holder Ritchie, like he's in the introduction to the book. Wow. Um, to demonstrate, right, the impossibility of policing racial boundaries. Um, so like I said, his, his youngest son um, then in California, um, returns to the LDS faith and ordained a deacon at age 71. And, <laughs> wow. And then a couple of months later, a teacher, a couple of months later, a priest, and then a couple of months later, an elder. Um, eventually moves to Roy, Utah, becomes a high priest, moves to Arizona, is a temple worker until he passes away in the 1980s. Um, uh, the son, so think how long slavery cast a shadow. The son of an enslaved man passes away as a temple worker in nineteen in the nineteen eighties in in Arizona. Wow, that's really hard to believe. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Wow, and that's how you start the book. I started the book with that family just to demonstrate right the impossibilities wow. of of policing racial boundaries and try try to get the reader to think about um, well what. Is race? Is it something biological? Is it something that's passed through the blood, like people said in the 19th century? Or is it just simply something we have made up in our minds to try to distinguish between people who look like us and people who look different from us and used it to justify discriminatory policies across the long course of human history? Wow. It brings up two questions. I want to finish up the first six that I thought I had identified that you've already shooting some holes in. (laughs) And hopefully you don't shoot a hole in this one. But um, Black Pete, that was the last one I couldn't remember. See, he was the earliest. Would it be safe to say that Black Pete was the first black Mormon? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Tell tell us that story. And do you think he was ordained? So um, he is 
baptized in Kirtland, I mean, um, there's no, those early records. So this is 1830. Mm -hmm. um, and you have the Latter-day Saint missionaries. Um, I mean, most of your listeners probably know that story. You know, the missionaries pass through the Kirtland region uh, and they convert um, a whole group of people. And I think amongst them is a formerly enslaved man that's only known in the written record as Black Pete, but um, researcher for Century of Black Mormons, um, Matthew McBride does uh, the research on him and identifies him as a formerly enslaved man, enslaved to the Kerr family. Mm -hmm. And um, then, you know, known- I think Mark Staker figured that out. Well, I, you know- um, how did he get that from McBride? Well, um, so Matt's research um, um, is after Mark Staker's. So Staker does um, include um, him as Black Pete in his book, yeah, and you know um, his conversion and all of those kind of things is there. Um, uh, we don't think that he was ordained to the priesthood. Really? Yeah, yeah. Didn't he serve a mission in? Ashtabula, Ohio? Because there's a newspaper article Mark told me, I remember. Hmm. It said he had served a mission in, it was in the Ashtabula Journal. I don't remember what the name of the article was. But yeah, that's what, he told me that on my podcast. I okay. Well, so, then we should follow that up. Okay. We should follow that up. We, um, you know, if we miss something, then, you know, we, we can correct it. Well, I, I will say what Mark said, and, I, and I'll provide a link to that as well. But um, what Mark said was there were newspaper reports. I'm pretty sure it was in Ashtabula that said that a black called him a leader among the leader and a, a leader and a chief. I remember because there was kind of a play on the Lamanite chief or yeah, Indian yeah. chief thing. Yeah, um, that he had. I thought he had served a mission between December of 1830, February of 1831, um, and Mark says there's no smoking gun, there's no certificate. I don't even know if they would have had those in 1830. No. Um, but Mark says it seems likely that he was ordained. Um, Mark's case was a lot of times in 1830, especially men were ordained, were baptized and ordained simultaneously. Um, and being such a small church, it would kind of make sense that Black Pete might have been, because he was seen kind of as a leader. Um, Mark also says, he believes that Black Pete brought speaking in tongues into the church, which I think is really exciting. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I thought there was some information there because Mark says we don't have a smoking gun, yeah. but it seems likely that Black Pete was ordained. Yeah, that could be. Um, and I can't remember. I mean, it's been a while since I looked at how uh, Matt McBride characterizes it um, for our biography in, in Century of Black Mormons. Um, so, you know, could leave that window open. Um, cause you keep shooting down all my windows. I know, Paul. I know, <laughs> I know. And you're, you're correct in terms of those, those earlier, um, you know, there, there are no certificates. Um, there are, there's no formal, <laughs> there's, there's no, you know, formal bureaucracy, right, right. To even kind of track this. And so the earlier you go, even baptismal records are non-existent. Um, and so you're reliant upon a missionary happen, uh, um, happening to keep a diary and then record the names of those who 
they baptized, you know, so it's sporadic at best in right. terms of those early records. I mean, we can't even officially say who the first six were. I know Michael Marquardt has tried to do that. We did a podcast about that, but yeah. we're not even 100% sure who the six people who were baptized on April 6, 1830. Correct. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the record keeping was not um, great um, and, you know, remained spotty, especially, uh, you know, baptized baptisms of um, enslaved people in the South. We've identified 26 people who were enslaved at the moment of baptism, but I think the number is probably higher than that. It's just that the records don't survive to substantiate that. Okay, okay. So at least 26 enslaved people were baptized, were enslaved at the moment of baptism. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Now, I want to go to one more point, and then we'll, we'll jump into your book. Because um, you had just mentioned that it was impossible to police a person's DNA, you know, the one-drop rule. Um, I had Joe Jessup on recently, um, and he, he, in my podcast, said there were three pillars of fundamentalism, polygamy, the race ban, and um, Adam-God theory. Kind of the three, and you know that might differ depending on your polygamous group or whatever. But um, I I know in a recent Sunstone presentation, um, trying to decide whether I should say his name. It's somebody I was trying to get on my podcast. I'll leave it him vague for now. <laughs> but uh, he he was a member of the Apostolic United Brethren, and as as I understand it, had done a DNA test and found out he had black ancestry and was basically excommunicated from the AUB mm. wow. because of that black ancestry, mm. which I personally find appalling, but it, it goes to this one drop rule. Um, you know, obviously we, did, we, we didn't really have that technology until say 2000 to even test if somebody had black ancestry, but apparently you can get kicked out of fundamentalist groups. Um, by having one drop. Um, wow. Any comments on that? Well, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I, that's, that's not my research expertise, but um, I think, you know, the point that I made earlier, like uh, the Century of Black Mormons database just demonstrates the impossibility of trying to police uh, that. Uh, I mean, now we can do DNA. Um, and they'll kick you out, apparently. Uh, apparently. Um, you know, but for what purpose? Got to keep it pure. Keep the white race pure, right? I mean, I, I know that's a racist thing to say, but that's, I mean, that's what it is, right? That, it's ugly. It's that, ugly. That's apparently, I, I mean, um, that's apparently the, the justification. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's talk about race and priesthood. <laughs> you uh, gave a presentation at Written Vision about a week ago. Um with Darius Gray. And one of the things that I found really interesting was you said that this was, was it the hardest book you've ever written? <laughs> I guess you haven't written a lot of books. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, just uh, in terms of um, hardest book I've ever written simply because uh, I am writing as a Latter-day Saint to fellow Latter-day Saints. So that was not my typical approach in my scholarship. Um, I'm 
typically writing for an academic audience, not necessarily for a Latter-day Saint audience. And then um, also sort of just identifying myself as uh, a Latter-day Saint, um, sort of inserting me into the narrative is something I'm not accustomed to. So because of that, it made it really challenging for me. Yeah. It was hard to figure out the voice um, for this narrative. And and I struggled at first. Um, I sent three draft chapters to the editor at Deseret Book, um, Lisa Roper, who was fantastic to work with. And, you know, I didn't want to get too far into the manuscript and have Deseret Book say, no, that's not what we're looking for. And so I said, hey, you know, Lisa, can you look at these three um, first chapters and just give me an indication of what you think? And Lisa is a phenomenal editor, um, just had a great experience working with her, and she was she's really diplomatic, so what I'm describing is not what she said. <laughs> but it was basically the message that she conveyed. She basically said, like, you know, you're keeping your your reader at arm's distance. This is dry and sterile. Um, and you're trying for, you know, academic objectivity. Um, and, you know, it just reads like you're holding your reader out here at arm's length. And she was absolutely correct. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think much of those first three draft chapters made it into the final manuscript. <laughs> I basically had to start over, in other words, and I had to, um, I had to sort of figure out, uh, you know, my voice and figure out um, how I'm going to approach this. And oh, um, it was difficult. So that's what made it the most difficult book I've written is, is just trying to figure out how I'm going to speak as a Latter-day Saint to a Latter-day Saint audience, which was just not something I'm accustomed to. Hmm. Yeah. And well, the other thing that you said was that Deseret Book approached you and said, we want you to write a book. And what was your reaction? <laughs> well, I was really skeptical. I mean, um, and I said that I think the first time Lisa approached me, it was in 2018 um, at the Mormon History Association conference in Boise. Um, where she... Uh, you were president at that one, weren't you? No, no, I wasn't. Um, I was president at the next one. So oh, I was okay. on the board. Um, okay. I was president at um, Salt Lake Was conference. it Patrick Mason? Was he president? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Patrick was Mason. At, uh, Patrick Mason was president in Boise. Um, and then I was president at the Salt Lake Conference the following year. Um, and I just expressed skepticism that Deseret Book would be willing to publish something that I wrote on race and the priesthood. Because they didn't publish your first book, uh, Religion of a Different Color, did they? Or they didn't, did they stock it even? Um, I think initially they did. Oh. Um, I think they did carry it on their show. So, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm in an academic position. So um, for it to count towards tenure, promotion, anything like that, I have to publish with an, a an academic press. So does your um, book that won't? Won't help you professionally. Well, well you no, know, not at all. And I wasn't interested in publishing with them because it doesn't count professionally for me. And I have to get an academic press. And so, you know, Oxford published Religion of a Different Color. But, um, you know, uh, Lisa approached me about this and she described the Let's Talk About series that they were envisioning. And she sort of laid out sort of their big picture vision of – um, a series that was kind of modeled on Oxford's um, short introduction series where they write you oh. know, 
short introductions to a topic. So like Patrick did something with uh, peace and violence. Yes. Yeah. Short introduction to religion and violence, you know, um, or Mormonism and violence. I can't remember, but yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, that's an example. I think his was not in the Oxford series, but there are other presses that have these kind of short introduction series. And so, um, they wanted kind of that model, but aimed not at an academic audience, but at a general Latter-day Saint audience, um, devoid of academic jargon, but still with all of the um, uh, sources and footnotes and the academic kind of credentials, but um, still speaking to a lay Latter-day Saint audience. Um, and they wanted to tackle uh, topics that are sometimes seen as controversial to give Latter-day Saints something a little bit more than the gospel topics essays to sink their teeth into. So when she described the series, you know, I was intrigued. I I think that's a good idea. I liked the um, the vision that she articulated, but I nonetheless expressed my skepticism that um, something that I wrote. A Deseret book would be willing to publish on race just because I didn't think they would be willing to go where I would want to go. And Lisa um, uh, reassured me that they wanted to be open and honest and, hey, please give us a chance is, is I think, you know, what I remember. Um, hey, would really like to try this out, you know, um, and – um, you know, they, they started the series with, with other books and, and they reapproached me and, um, said, we're still interested. And, you know, I, I, one of my conditions was, um, you have to read Brigham Young's 5th of February, 1852 speech and know that I will be quoting from it. You can't come to me after the manuscript is complete and say, Hey, you can't say that, you know? <laughs> so I said, you have to be aware of what I will be quoting. And, um, you know, they, um, agreed to that. And they read the speech. Yeah, they did. Have you published that yet? They did. Cause uh, that's coming up in your next book, isn't it? It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've been waiting for that speech for six years. <laughs> separate, separate project, but yeah, um, that will be coming out. We'll make all of those speeches publicly. Available. And we will have you on again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will look forward to that. Um, so anyway, um, you know, um, I produced the manuscript and I mean, it, it now exists. So, <laughs> well, And one thing I want to talk about uh, with that speech, because I think it, it's amazing um, because it, it deals, well, I don't want to say it deals with one drop, but there's a one drop Problem, I guess we'll say, in that the, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Wilford Woodruff had quoted Brigham Young as saying, um, I won't have one or something about one drop in yeah. the speech. Yeah, yeah. But you said Brigham Young never actually said that. Right. So, so tell us about that little issue. Sure. So um, Wilford Woodruff is a legislator in the 1852 Territorial Legislature. He attempts to capture Brigham Young's 5th of February speech in longhand. He captures roughly 800 words of a 3,000-word speech. And I think he gets the general sense of the speech pretty good, but makes, I think, um, some, some critical mistakes. And one of those critical mistakes is he introduces the language of one drop into his version of the speech. And we um, then found the... Pittman 
shorthand version, which Lejean Carruth, who's employed by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Church History Department, transcribed it um, based on the, the Pittman shorthand version, which was recorded by George Watt. And so that's how we know we have you know, um, a much longer speech than what Wood- Woodruff captured and that Woodruff introduced some critical errors into his version. So the, the problem is people have been using Woodruff's version for a century, right? Right. That's and right. And we still don't we still don't have this speech yet. Yeah. <laughs> We're working on it. We're working on it. It will be publicly available. Um yeah, so that's no, that's that's right. So most scholars had relied upon it and Woodruff doesn't date it either. So that led to confusion as to the chronology of events at the legislative session. He doesn't date it as uh, 5th of February. He just sticks it in his um, journal with no date. Um, And so that had also led to confusions among scholars. So we now know it's a 5th of February speech and we have the full Pittman transcription. And... um, we will have then side by side the Woodruff version versus the Pittman transcription version. Oh, okay. Um, so, so scholars can compare across columns. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, and you know um, the the Pittman version has you know no one um, of African ancestry can hold one jot or tittle of priesthood, and I think that's. Jot sounds a lot like drop. I think, uh, you know, Woodruff is going with one drop, right? And the speech says one jot or tittle. Hmm. Um, so, I Which mean, really, semantically, isn't really that much better. There are natural... Well, but it's it's not one drop of African blood. It's one drop... Uh, one jot or tittle of priest can hold one jot or tittle of priesthood. And so oh. he's not talking about African ancestry. He's saying if you have... African ancestry, you can't hold one jot or tittle of priesthood is what the Pittman version says. And Woodruff gets one drop of African blood, I think, confused there. Okay. And we... we because one drop was a common phrase of the day... It was. ...in dealing with slavery and that sort of thing, right? It was, Because right. wasn't there... This is where my U.S. history is really rusty. Virginia or someplace like that talked about one drop of... Of of African blood or something. Well, um, so at the at, in the eighteen fifties, um, they were uh, so enslavers were using the one drop rule um, for passing on slavery to the next generation. Um, so even if they raped a slave, yeah. then they could still be a slave. Uh, based on the condition of the mother, right? And so a white man raping a black woman, um, the condition passes. Uh, the condition of slavery passes through the mother. And you can so some states passed you know these one drop rules in terms of slavery, like they could have um, you know ninety nine white ancestors and one black ancestor, and they could still be enslaved. Hmm. Then after Plessy versus Ferguson, um, and you have segregation running rampant across the United States, you have some states then trying to define okay how much African ancestry can you have to for us to legally segregate you? And so in this case— Well, then it became a segregation issue. It became a segregation issue. And so some states—this is after slavery is dead, so we're not talking about you know inheriting slavery. We're talking about who can legally be defined as black. And some states, like the state of Virginia, so that's that you are remembering that correctly, okay. state of Virginia um, during segregation does pass a one-drop rule— 
which legally defines someone as black if they have one drop of African ancestry in the state of Virginia. Um, they are legally defined as black. Wasn't Virginia also the uh, Loving versus Virginia yes. case, right? Correct. Virginia's all over this. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, there's a one-drop um, chapter in 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 the book. Oh, okay. Um, so I I address that in the book because Latter Day Saints then are attempting. It plays out um, in terms of temple admission and priesthood ordination. How much African ancestry uh, can a person have? And I demonstrate um, a couple of examples where they're trying to figure this out. Um, and across the course of the 19th century, they increasingly go with. Um, a one-drop kind of attitude. George Cucannon argues for basically a one-drop um, policy in 1900. It's formally put in place in 1907. And so the church does adopt its own one-drop policy in 1907, simply stipulating that it doesn't matter um, how remote a degree African ancestry. So a person could look white, but um, if they have African ancestry, then they are barred from the priesthood and temple admission, no matter how otherwise worthy they may be, the policy says. So it's not based on worthiness, it's based on race. Um, and uh, that's what they attempt to enforce from 1907 onward. Wow. Yeah. I mean... I don't know if this is too inflammatory, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> it reminds me of the yellow star that the Jews had to wear in Nazi Germany, right? I mean, is it, isn't, isn't it kind of a similar kind of an idea? Well, um, I mean, this is just an effort at trying to, um, yeah, uh, ferret out a racial identity. Um, and, you know, I open, like I said, I open with the, with the um, Ritchie family, which demonstrates the impossibility of doing well, that. Because Hitler was trying to do the same thing with right. Jews, just with Judaism, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's just terrible. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Paul Reeve, author of Race. Let's Talk About Race and Priesthood. Now, remember, if you want to get this, you better sign up right away because I'm going to give them this away next week. So sign up at gospeltangents.com slash contest and you could win a copy of Let's Talk About Race and Priesthood. In our final conversation with Paul, we're going to talk about some of the justifications that people use to justify the race ban. She can answer the Temple Recommend questions exactly the same as a white person before June of 1978. The white person be admitted to the temple and Frida denied. Not based on worthiness because she's answering the questions the same based on race. That's racism. Uh, so I'm not sure that um, people have fully come to terms with that. Um, and I hope that by, you know, um, illustrating sort of how these policies impacted the lives of real people, that it might prompt people to think more um, deeply about that. Thanks for listening to Gospel Tangents. If you'd like to support me, please subscribe at gospeltangents.com or on patreon.com slash gospeltangents, or you can watch entire videos at youtube.com slash gospeltangents. I really can't do this without your support. I'd love to do it full time, and I need a lot more people that are willing to, to help me out. So I'd really appreciate that. So thanks again for listening, and don't forget to check out some of our other videos. This is the story of The One. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.